Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Hello and welcome back to Reframing Our Stories. I'm so glad that you are here. I hope all of you are doing well. I feel like there's just so much heavy that's happening in our world right now, but I hope that you're able to find a chance to care for yourself in whatever that way may be, because it's a lot. It almost feels like there's just so many of us that are hurting and are not finding a way to remedy that hurt or take care of it. I just got done talking with a bunch of youth and a health class about healthy relationships. And I have to tell you, it was kind of an amazing experience because our kids hold wisdom. I have a lot of wisdom and I hope that as adults, we work really hard to lift up our children. And I think that right now, some of us are acting out of fear and we're acting out of hurt and we're not taking care of each other. And we're especially not taking care of our kids. And it's making me feel really heavy. And it's making me feel really sad. And I go into these classrooms and I teach these kids and I'm telling you, some of them have it more together than we do. I just have to say. And the way that they spoke about relationships and how to be with one another and care for one another and accept one another was awesome. And I actually pretty much pretended to be like, well, you guys don't need me. <laughs> I pretended to walk out of the room. But they're wonderful, wonderful humans that we have um, coming up, you know, below us and not below us, but, you know, the other generation. And so often we look to find faults instead of looking to see where we are similar and where they have wisdom and they have wisdom. And we need to care for them. And I think as adults, we need to recognize our hurts and we need to do the hard work. We got to do the hard work, you guys, because there's too much happening. And I just, I don't think it's okay. It's really heavy. But besides that, I would love for you, if you are liking us to again, like, and subscribe, please join our email list and you can find it at reframingourstories.com and uh, you can sign up there where you can hear more about what we do, get some resources, and get some insights from me. And with that, here's the show. In the world of human sexuality, not every topic is given the same amount of airspace as others. I believe one of those topics is asexuality. In fact, at one of my own speaking events, an individual told me, in an anonymous box, that as an asexual person, they felt left out. Part of my goal as an educator is to help people feel seen. So anytime I receive feedback like this, I always feel badly. However, then I realize it is my responsibility to do better. I knew exactly who I wanted to speak with to give more airspace to asexuality, and that is Aubrey Lancaster. Aubrey is an asect and anti-up certified sexuality educator. As a gray romantic asexual, Aubrey has lived experienced and a connection to the asexual and aromantic communities 
that provides a unique perspective on the issues facing the changing landscape of sexuality and orientation. When not working, Aubrey spends her time with her spouse, her friends, her six-year-old, and her two adorable chihuahuas. Aubrey, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you and I just appreciate you so much. And I've been following your work and everything you do through ASECT. And I just love the way too, that you present yourself as an educator and how I appreciate the times too, whenever we have listservs and different things, the way that you show up in that space and are like, remember, (laughs) (laughs) remember asexuality. And I think that's so important, right? And so for my listeners, I know that they would really want a full definition of asexuality. And if you could also speak to what it means to be gray romantic. Yeah. You know, I I really love the name of your show. And I I think it's such a great context to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Because how we frame conversations around sexual orientation has a huge impact on the erasure of asexual people. So before I give Mm -hmm. a textbook definition of some kind, let's talk about that framing. Yeah, that was so I almost want you to say that again, if you are able to say that again. <laughs> oh, I can try. Because <laughs> it was beautiful. And okay. really like powerful. Yeah. As best as you can. So I really love the name of your show. And I think it really speaks to the importance of this conversation because the framing around how we discuss sexual orientation is what is contributing to the erasure of asexual people. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yes. Unpack that. (laughs) So, yeah. So let's talk about that. What is sexual orientation and how is it framed? Mm -hmm. So how do you understand sexual orientation to be framed in Western American culture? Right. So whenever, right, when we teach in educational classes, we say, you know, gender identity is who you believe you are and orientation is who you love, right? That's how I've heard it explained to me in my courses. (laughs) (laughs) So your framing of it is who do you love? But what is love? Are we talking all kinds of love? Or who we're attracted to, yes. Okay, who we're Mm -hmm. attracted to. What kind of attraction? are we talking about? Mm, Man, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) Snapping. So what does attraction mean? Right. How do you frame that? If somebody were to ask that in your class, how would you answer that part? Mm. I would say, who are you being drawn to in a way that, well, we can have bodily response. I always like to bring in the body to my Mm -hmm. responses. So like, sure. Where, how is your body responding to a person? Mm, That's a really interesting way to approach it. I like that. Responding in what way? Right. So I would say a way that you're being drawn to them where you want to get to know them more and maybe providing some sort of a sensation within yourself, which could be a tingling sensation throughout Okay. Because I also don't think it's always just related to 
like a genital sensation. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, because I believe sometimes we're, we seek to have more deep connection from people. We can, we can feel like maybe a vibration of some sort. And maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Know. So you're leaning into that embodied element. How does it feel in your body? Mm-hmm. But the language we're talking about so far could still be applicable to non-sexual contexts. It's true. So, As I say this, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So everything you said there could also apply to a student in your class towards you, right? If they're feeling mm-hmm. drawn to you, they want to mm-hmm. get to know you better. Mm-hmm. They're feeling a tingling in their body. Is that tingling sexual or is it an excitement? There's this person right. that has this knowledge mm-hmm. that they want to get to know better. Mm-hmm. So how do we get more specific with that? So then I would say, and this is, and now I'm recognizing, I think exactly what you're trying to say. I would say then who you would want to explore to get to know more to lean into more of a romantic relationship okay so now we're moving over into romantic we've kind of removed that sexual component what Mm -hmm. is romantic I would say a place where you can learn you can take intimacy to a deeper level of a connection where you can explore in a different way and then whatever way that may be for you that feels so a lot of that to you still because it's, it's a very platonic too right so but I think so I also think all this is very individual uh-huh yeah you know and I say that to people I'm like this all of this stuff is very individually based in the Mm -hmm. way of how you feel. And that's why also I say, we also all have our own definition of what sex is. True. Mm -hmm. And then I say, and part of that is to understand what that is and then learn how to verbalize that to another person Mm -hmm. because we all share something different. So I think this also would apply in the sense of like, what does that mean for you? What does romantic look like for you? What is it? you know, kind of like you're saying. And so for me, it's an individual attraction is someone who I'm aesthetically drawn to, mm-hmm. who I would want to maybe get to know a little bit more to see mm-hmm. if we connect beyond a physical, what is it, a physical attraction to a emotional attraction. Mm-hmm. And then if there is a commonality there, then to see what more could that look like if we were to kiss or something like mm, that kind mm-hmm. of how I had looked at it for a long time. Great. So one of the things the asexual community is doing is expanding the language mm-hmm. around attraction. Okay. So you hit on several very important elements there. Aesthetic attraction, the appreciation of another person's physical presentation and style. For some people, they may focus on innate physical characteristics, Mm -hmm. but for others, it could be much more about aesthetic choices. Somebody that wears similar clothing to what appeals to them, or, you know, they have a, a certain 
form of comportment, how they present themselves. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different aesthetic elements. Mm -hmm. And for an asexual person, uh, an asexual make person may connect to the concept of aesthetic attraction, similarly to finding a beautiful painting or mm -hmm. sunset. Just, I could look for hours and just enjoy every single detail, but I don't want to have sex with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And for some yeah. people... Yeah that aesthetic element is a huge part of why they do want to have sex with another person, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what does that aesthetic element do for a person that does experience that sexual component? Mm -hmm. What does it do? I think it, I feel like it's that initial like hook almost like what draws mm. us in mm -hmm. to further yeah. explore or engage. Yeah. And yet that hook could also draw us into a platonic relationship. Of course, yeah. Wanting to get to know someone and bond and be friends with them. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the language of sensual attraction, mm -hmm. wanting to cuddle and hug and maybe kiss. Mm -hmm. But that kind of speaks more to the element of skin hunger, you know, that, that need to like, have physical ew. contact with another <laughs> yeah. person. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And some people... That skin hunger can be satisfied, again, through platonic relationships, hugs with friends, family, puppies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we are not including a sexual element in that conversation, there's a lot of different ways that we can experience kind of that sensual or some people prefer the term affectionate attraction. Yeah. So then go ahead. Well, I'm just like, I mean, all of this is like, okay, if I, if I may speak about mm -hmm. this. This again is why I'm like, we have to just constantly open the door <laughs> to new ways of like seeing things because mm -hmm. yes, like all of that is encompassing in so many things, right? Of like so many different kinds of relationships and also why it is understandable too of, in my opinion, uh, polyamorous relationships and mm -hmm. how they serve in different capacities for different yeah. people, you know? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so then, continue on. Yeah. Let's break it down more. You talked about emotional attraction, mm -hmm. you know, somebody to share feelings with, to be seen and heard mm -hmm. for some people, sex is an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. That is a way that they build that emotional connection with perhaps a, a a partner, a lifetime partner, or even in short term. So the emotional connection and emotional attraction can also be platonic. Mm -hmm. And then we have intellectual attraction, the mm. meeting of the minds, wanting yeah. to geek out, right? I love how I just completely forget about that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where a lot of people that's really do, mm -hmm. you know, connect with others, especially coworkers, colleagues, mentors, teachers, people in our life that we can learn from, people mm -hmm. that we want to share our knowledge with. Mm -hmm. And peers that we just want to share interests with, right? Yeah, for sure. So then we circle back around what is sexual attraction and what is romantic attraction? And you're right. Everybody kind of has to define that for themselves. Mm -hmm. So in order to situate it a little bit more specifically, and especially to understand how they can differentiate between sexual and romantic attraction, because for a lot of people, they are intricately intertwined. Mm 
but not for everyone. Mm -hmm. So sexual attraction is basically finding another person sexually appealing or hot. Mm -hmm. It is for some that hook seeing another person and getting that tingling or physical sexual response of some kind, starting to fantasize about sexual encounters with that person. And it could include going into an immediate aroused state. It may not. So there's a lot of different things that can go into the concept of sexual attraction. It has been given many names over the years. It's very uh, analogous for some people to the concept of lust. Yeah. For others, it is more situated in an emotional and romantic space where it is more focused on that long-term pairing mm-hmm. rather than the sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. So romantic attraction, I find is more analogous to limerence, the puppy love, the falling in love, The idea of uh, getting a crush that doesn't necessarily have a sexual component, though for some people, the crush is also accompanied by thoughts of sexual encounters. Mm -hmm. But sex is a symbol of romantic love's reciprocation. It is not the goal of romantic love. The goal of romantic love is a return of feelings at a similar level of intensity And in our culture, we framed it as finding the one. I know. (laughs) Right? And as you said, polyamory also deals with the problems of this Mm -hmm. expectation that this romantic love is going to be a lifelong exclusive experience. There's a term, amatonormativity. Mm-hmm. That was coined by Elizabeth Brake for her book, Minimizing Marriage. She's a legal scholar. So mm. she's talking about the legal frameworks and implications of this expectation and prioritization of a single, amorous, romantic, exclusive sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And within our society, we are expected to perform sexually And engage in that romantic component in order to have marriage Mm -hmm. or long-term committed partnered relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a large expectation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's circle back around to what is sexual orientation. Mm. And some of these framing devices that we have basically, first off, assume heteronormativity, mononormativity. Mm. And sexual orientation, as we have it framed, is essentially, and essentialist logic is definitely not the best place to situate these things, but for this conversation, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to essentialize a little bit. So it's essentially asking, it is assuming your gender, and mm-hmm. it is assuming you are going to be sexually, romantically, and emotionally attracted, and aesthetically attracted, and all of these attractions bound up into one single thing, because we can't name them separately, we just have attraction, Mm -hmm. that you are going to be attracted to someone of a different gender or sex than yourself. Mm -hmm. So in order to start to reframe that, Mm -hmm. we have to first look at what is our gender? We have to ask the question, what is our gender? And what genders are we attracted to? If gender is even a factor 
in our attraction, which for Mm. some people it's not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we also have to step back and ask the question, are we attracted to other people? Yeah. Because sexual attraction, as we frame it, assumes all of these components and it assumes you are going to be attracted to somebody mm-hmm. and that attraction is going to be at least sexual and romantic if not all of these other things yeah so within that conglomeration of assumptions it's really difficult to parse out and recognize when you're not experiencing a component of that being sexual attraction hmm especially if you are also experiencing romantic attraction and falling in love and getting crushes and wanting to find the one Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or in a polyamorous setting that new relationship energy wanting new partners and a new connection that's deep and related to this concept of falling in love yes I'm just like taking this all in (laughs) I'm hearing it all I'm absorbing. (laughs) So back in 1979, did you want to say something? I do, because you know, what's fascinating is I, you know, I, I 100% am going to say that you are the first person who I have heard say these things, (laughs) like in terms of really breaking it down, like, you know, we've had those conversations around orientation gender identity, but I'm recognizing that even in those conversations that I've had, you know, throughout my education, I just now recognize has just been like spread out on this like board, (laughs) you know, and, and it's just like, okay, and here's this, and this is, this is defined as this, and this, (laughs) this, this, and here's how that is. And I'm now like, okay, now we for again, forgot the layers. Yeah. And we, for it's like, it's, I just keep thinking, you know, I'm imagining like this cake and it's like, now let's put on this layer and frost this. And mm-hmm. now we're adding some more to this. And I do believe like, that's what gets us held up because, you know, like when we go into a classroom to teach in public schools, it's like, here's 30 minutes to 40 to an hour. Mm-hmm. And it's like impossible to frame things as we are, as as you just did. I mean, now I'm going to work on that. (laughs) But really, like, I feel like it was the first time that has been really, like, broken down for me in that way, which also means a lot of work we all have to do. I mean, yeah, but then I'm just like, oh, man, like, we need to, there's still a lot more that sex educators Mm -hmm. who are teaching, even at college and graduate levels needs to do. Yeah. So we've barely scratched the surface. Right. Well, I'm assuming. You asked me the question, (laughs) what does asexual mean? So within this context that our culture has created, we have come up with these labels to help us position ourselves within a spectrum of orientation. Mm -hmm. So we have heterosexual, which is assumed to be the default and is assumed to also include those romantic and emotional and aesthetic and all of these other components. And that assumes your gender 
as cisgender and mm -hmm. attracted to another person who is cisgender. We've started to incorporate other genders into conceptualizations and, you know, the idea that gender is clearly different from sex in that component. So some people identify with heterosexual based on their gender. Some identify with it based on their biological sex, whatever that might look like for them. Mm. And of course, that all throws out intersex people. Right. <laughs> they're they're exactly. not even included in that conversation. Exactly. So if at best, it is your gender as you identify yourself, and the gender of the other person as they identify themselves, if we stick within that framework, heterosexual means that your gender as you identify it, it you are attracted to people who identify with a different gender within this kind of binary. Mm -hmm. And then we have gay or lesbian who are identified within their gender as attracted to people that are of a same or similar gender. Mm -hmm. And then we have the bisexual or M-spec, where we have people who identify as being attracted to people of two or more genders mm -hmm. with multiple layers with that, too. There's differentiation of labels with that. You know, there's some people who identify as pansexual who are attracted to other people regardless of gender. Right. Or perhaps some of these gender orientations like omnisexual, they're attracted to specific genders but not necessarily all genders and polysexual you know I get those two mixed up sometimes I don't want to misquote them that's not yes. my purview right but you understand where I'm going with that we have these I ways do. of differentiating what's my gender what's your gender and mm -hmm. what are the genders that we're attracted to but it's still very much based within this question of gender mm-hmm mm-hmm so that's where a lot of conversations in queer communities get tied in is this concept of gender, both the queerness of my gender not conforming to social standards and my attraction to genders that don't conform to social standards. Mm -hmm. And we're so wrapped up in that conversation, which is a very important conversation to have, yeah, that we're not stopping to ask the question, are you attracted to anyone? Mm -hmm. And yet some people don't experience sexual attraction to anyone. Some people experience it rarely or only under certain circumstances, such as demisexual people who need an emotional connection in order to access sexual attraction. And they may not experience sexual attraction to anyone until that emotional connection is established. And that doesn't right. guarantee it either. Right. You know, just as bisexual people are not guaranteed to be attracted to all people, there's still other things that influence why we're attracted to somebody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then we throw up our hands and say, we're done having the conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's well, so much more to it. So this is where, okay. So now, now we're recognizing the depth and just, I mean, I feel, and if I can say this, it feels all of us, when we look at orientation, identity, whatnot humans <laughs> mm -hmm. it is very philosophical in a way mm -hmm. right we have to go deeper we have to ask the questions we have to be able to just not take things at face value mm -hmm. so when we are de dealing with let's say what's happening in our world <laughs> currently around human sexuality mm -hmm. how do we help people then want to get engaged to go deeper because some people are going to hear some of this and be like, that's too much. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm done. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So what are ways that you think then we can help people be encouraged to see all people and to acknowledge the many forms in which people experience human sexuality? We have to start having the conversations. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we are not allowed in the spaces where these conversations need to be had. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about schools, I'm talking about all social circles. Sexual orientation is kind of held as this other. Yeah. Because we assume our gender and orientation. Mm-hmm. Any shift out of that space, any awareness of our gender being different than what society has told us it is, or any awareness of our attractions or orientations being different, that is an othered space. Mm -hmm. And it's based on assumptions. So what we need, first of all, is to stop making assumptions. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. obviously, you know, our our language is based on assumptions. Assumptions. (laughs) (laughs) So we have to start reframing all of that. Mm -hmm. And instead of assuming that you're heterosexual until proven otherwise, that you're cisgender until proven otherwise, Mm -hmm. we need to give people space to explore those concepts and give them the language to start to understand how they identify within those constructs and how they may start to see things a little differently than the constructs that have been assumed for us. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to also help people understand that because we are ever-changing, right? Human beings, we evolve, we grow, we learn that our language is growing and learning at the same Mm -hmm. time. And again, like there is this ability to accept nuance language, I would say, around uh, popular culture things Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, all the new technology that we've accepted this new language for. But I see a lot of resistance in accepting new language around sexuality. Yeah, because we're challenging the foundation of major power structures. We're challenging white, cis, hetero, mono normativity and superiority. Mm -hmm. And this positioning of those identities as the norm Mm -hmm. to which everything else is in contrast to. Mm -hmm. And those norms like to be on top. They like to be the dominant narratives. So it's easy to dismiss anything that doesn't uphold those dominant narratives and dominant frameworks. But when you look at it, those frameworks are house of cards Mm -hmm. and we're blowing. Oh yeah. And they don't like that. No, they don't want their house of cards to come tumbling down because then they lose their power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's, some things that are beyond us, beyond our control, you know, I'm I'm not going to be redefining sexuality for everyone in this moment, you know, mm-hmm. but we can start to question for ourselves what these things mean for us. And we can develop the language to have the conversations to compare and contrast and build positionalities within these spectrums. And they are spectrums. 
that is what that gray romantic part of my identity means. Mm -hmm. Because again, I know what romantic attraction feels like. I have felt limerence. I have felt falling in love. I felt crushes. But at the same time, I have only felt them under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And when I met my spouse 15 years ago, I fell in love. I felt all of those feelings, but I have not felt them for anyone since, which is the normative story that Mm -hmm. we don't feel romantic attraction to anyone when we're in a relationship. That's what we're, quote, supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But we also know that that's ridiculous. Many people experience crushes and fall in love when they are already in a committed partnership, even if they are in love with or dedicated to their spouse. They may still form these crushes and relationships. That's part of what polyamory is trying to explain to everyone is that some people can have multiple romantic connections at once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't actually mean that everybody is experiencing romantic attraction in the same way. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I have not had a crush of any kind since meeting my spouse, that for 15 years, I haven't had any other romantic attractions in my life. It brings me to a space where I do recognize that the majority of my connections in my life, and since I don't experience sexual attraction, have all been platonic. Mm. The love that I have for the people in my life is platonic love. Right. The new connections that I form, the excitement of meeting a new person is a platonic attraction. Mm-hmm. So I situate myself in the gray space of the aromantic spectrum because while I have experienced it, it is only under certain circumstances. And I do recognize that it is in a different positionality than some other people experience romantic love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my head is everywhere. Um, I guess for me, some of the things I started thinking about when you also were explaining this is then what do you, how do you want to see things change? I think is my first question. I would love to see people embrace new language. Mm -hmm. Language is a tool to help us communicate to understand our intrinsic experiences because so much of human psychology is based on behavior, not intrinsic Mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm. So there is a shift going on where people are starting to explore what is it like inside? What does it feel like? And to recognize that we can't define these experiences within very specific parameters because we're all relating to these words through different contexts. My knowledge and history is different from your knowledge and history. So your awareness and understanding of, like you said, sex and romance are going to be different than mine. And we're still going to have very similar contexts for that because we're both situated in a similar part of the country. Supposedly, we have relatively similar cultural histories and such. So I'm sure there's differences there too. Mm -hmm. But the further people get from each other in so many different ways and have different oppressive frameworks that are working against them, how are people hypersexualized? How are people desexualized? That affects how they are perceived and how they are expected to behave, but it doesn't reflect how they experience these attractions, how they experience desire. It is only being placed upon them. 
-hmm. And then statistics come in and back that all up. Right, right. (laughs) And statistics give us this majority normative expectation. And the smaller percentages, the marginalized people within those statistics are ignored and pushed aside. Mm-hmm. And yet it's in those margins, the most knowledge can be held because sure. those margins see the shadows of those dominant narratives and what that dominant narrative doesn't highlight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you might think this is a little strange, but if you had a turn, like, as I talked about, we're recognizing, I'm using food language (laughs) are recognizing the cake right I talked about there's all these layers yeah if you had to make it the cake and the explanation in the simplest form for like if you're teaching (laughs) young children even or explaining what's our textbook definition not the textbook no okay just make it a cupcake if you had to turn the cake into a cupcake yeah so if I, if I am just going to give an explanation for asexuality, asexual people experience little to no sexual attraction to other people. Aromantic people experience little to no romantic attraction to other people. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm saying for this in terms of orientation at large, because we talked about how you said even orientation, I wasn't clear, is erasing asexuality. Yeah. So how could we turn that concept that you're talking about into this cupcake? I know that would take a long time to think about. So Dr. Storms Mm -hmm. created a chart in 1979 that was inclusive of asexuality and then never really made it into the mainstream. Hmm. And it was based on the Kinsey model, which also kind of has its flaws because again, these are assuming gender binaries, right? But within that assumption, the Kinsey model has that scale of one to 10. It goes from heterosexual to homosexual with Mm -hmm. gradients in between. And it assumes that the more homosexual you are, the less heterosexual you are and vice versa. Right. So Dr. Storms came in and said, well, that's not necessarily true. Some people can be very heterosexual and very homosexual at the same time. Dr. Storms created a grid that was more of an XY axis. And on one Mm -hmm. axis, it went from lowest amount of uh, heteroeroticism Mm -hmm. to highest amount of heteroeroticism. heteroeroticism. And on the other axis was lowest amount of homoeroticism to higher amount of of homoeroticism. Mm -hmm. So at the lowest point, that square was asexual. Yeah. Okay, at the yes. highest point for both was bisexual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is a framing component that makes asexuality visible. Mm-hmm. But in general, we need to be aware that some people don't experience sexual attraction to others. Some right. people are not in need of interpersonal sexual interaction. So your cupcake would basically be some people are straight, some people are gay, some people are bi, some people are ace. Just name it. Just naming name that is so important. If you're going to name orientations, Mm -hmm. name it and name aromanticism too, because while that doesn't deal with the sexual component, it does deal with the romantic component. Mm -hmm. No, I love this. 
And some people do put gendered elements onto their asexuality or aromanticism. So Mm -hmm. some people may identify as heteroromantic asexual Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or bisexual aromantic. Hmm. Yeah, this is good. I just, this is good. And I I just felt like I'm always this person who, and I know sometimes you can't simplify things, but I was like, okay, because I get that there's where people will hear this and feel overwhelmed, you know, um, when they're just kind of taking it in. And Mm -hmm. so I'm all like, let's bring that to a cupcake. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I get it. Like you said, if we're reframing the stories, first, Mm -hmm. we have to dismantle the framework that we're dealing with. And that just leaves our cards strewn all over the table. And then Mm -hmm. we have to figure out how do we pick them up and put them back together again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also then, and I like that to be able to rearrange them. Mm -hmm. I think we, I, and I think that is what and tear them up into pieces and name yeah. the different pieces. Yeah. I think that's what we're learning the most about is as we have been giving one another more permission to walk out of these boxes that we have created or that were given to us, we've been able to explore more of, of who we are individually and then who we are collectively and recognizing that what we have built for our understanding of things is not representative of everyone. Yeah. And like you said, like even the whole stuff with culture and where we are at, and I mean, all of that plays into it with our different experiences, different understandings of the world, different culture, cultural Mm -hmm. makeup, it all plays into our ideas of sexuality And I am hoping that as people and as we move forward, though right now it feels like we're being pushed backwards, but as, as we move forward, I'm hoping that people will be able to start to realize that the more we are willing to ask appropriate, and I want to say appropriate questions and intentional questions and be, and be curious of one another, the more growth we can have, I think, personally as individuals and Mm -hmm. collectively as community. Yeah. You know? Definitely. So a lot of the work that you do concentrates on asexuality and helping organizations come to an understanding of that. So can you tell us a little bit more of even what kind of organizations are hiring you and what are you telling them and what are they gaining? Yeah. So I've spoken for a number of college organizations and, um, you know, talking about some of these concepts, often in different contexts. You know, I I have a presentation on intimacy Mm -hmm. and differentiating different kinds of intimacy and valuing platonic intimacy Mm -hmm. and all of that. Uh, I also have some trainings that I do that really just break down asexuality and aromanticism, which I feel is a very important component of this. 
And uh, I also do a six hour training for professionals that is included with six ASEC CEs that's provided by my supervisor, Dr. Bianca Lariano. Mm -hmm. And that's really geared towards professionals who need to understand these orientations to work with their clients. A lot of therapists, a lot of sexuality educators. Uh, I had a tarot reader come through once. So anybody who is working in queer spaces, who is working in mental health, in medical fields, they need to understand how asexual people and aromantic people may be differently impacted by their work. And so, as you said, you know, we barely scratched the surface today. There's so much to go through, which is why I put six hours worth of that training together to truly contextualize it and help people to understand the positionalities and to start to build affirming practices, because that's the next step. We spend so much time in the 101 of what is asexuality and what is aromanticism that so often we don't get to the part about saying, how do we support these communities? How do we help them envision beautiful, affirming lives that include the kinds of relationships that they do want? How do we support people who may not want a coupled partner companionate relationship? Singleism, as defined by Bella DiPaolo, is also an issue that gets swept under the rug. Completely. And I feel like there's also this sense of devaluing a person if they're not partnered. 100%. Yeah. Right. In so and- many, in just so many areas. And the fact of even how our systems are built in our country mm-hmm. of tax breaks. Of- mm-hmm. You know, of, uh, and it goes into your income yes. uh, benefits for spouses that are not given to dependent parents that right. might be in your home or your best friend that's your companion, your life companion. Mm-hmm. And maybe they are helping raise your kids or you're raising their kids or whatever that situation Mm -hmm. might look like, we don't get the opportunity to define the kinds of relationships that are most affirming to us because we have to work within these clearly defined structures that require us to find somebody that is a sexual romantic partner that we are going to live with for the rest of our lives. And which more and more (laughs) people right now based on inflation and just how ridiculously Mm -hmm. expensive housing is Mm -hmm. are buying houses with their best friends. Yeah. You know, and then, so what does that look like in terms of paperwork Mm -hmm. and all of that? So one of the things I, I do as a professional is I also work with church spaces Mm -hmm. and a lot of understanding around human sexuality comes from those spaces mm-hmm. right it has influenced our western american culture tremendously yeah what would be if you were hired by a church organization to say how they could be more inclusive of asexual people what would you say what are some of the things that you would help them? i don't I don't know that I would be the best person to do that presentation because I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a secular pagan Jew. <laughs> so, but you I would don't still... know that a church space would be my Yes, venue. but I still feel like regardless of, I think, beliefs, like being able to recognize that organizations create these ministries and, and even in, you know, 
Jewish temples and stuff of different groups of like, oh, here we have these different experiences coming together. And where I also feel like people who are single are left out of that Mm -hmm. because we are still, we are still doing this whole, you have to be married and have families and, and things like that. So I just, I'm always thinking about these organizations that set up the stuff where people go to find a sense of intimacy in their own way of a spiritual realm, whatever that religion looks like for them. Mm -hmm. But yet there's these components that are not recognizing that or the way they experience sexuality or lack of, you know, did I say that like, right, even? I mean, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, I certainly recognize the dominant narratives that come through some theologies that talk about, you know, the sanctity of marriage, the, uh, responsibility to be sexually active within a marriage the procreation mandate be fruitful and multiply uh not to spill the seed uh these elements that speak to compulsory sexuality the assumption that everybody needs and wants sex or that it is the responsibility of married partners to procreate and to serve each other sexually and to build that kind of um commitment within their relationship the uh that exclusive commitment that the partner is going to be the only sexual partner the only romantic partner and for some people the only emotional partner that is a gendered component too whereas people who are socialized as women are given a little bit more room to have emotional connections outside the relationship so long as they prioritize Mm -hmm. their partner as their primary emotional connection and people who are socialized as men are expected to only have emotional connections within very rigid structures you know the uh bro or (laughs) you know that they they have they have men's spaces and very clear definitions of how to act in those spaces and ways to withhold emotional access Mm -hmm. okay so the other thing I want to ask is there when some when people learn that a person is asexual they also tend to say a lot of things that should not be said, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to highlight some of those things of when a person's like, oh, you're asexual? And then they and then they continue with a slew of questions. Do you want to help people understand <laughs> the questions? Uh, don't are- ask people if they masturbate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? But, you know, a lot of the questions that will start to come out is a way for them to create this kind of litmus test for whether or not they believe the person is asexual. Do you have sex? Well, if you have sex, you're not actually asexual. You've never had sex. Well, you've never tried it. How do you know that you're asexual? You need to try it first. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, if you masturbate, you can't be asexual because, you know, obviously that implies it. But Asexual people have anywhere from no libido, they may never masturbate, they never never want to engage with any sort of sexual activity, all the way up to a high libido, but it's not directed in any outward direction. Yeah. So sexual attraction gives the libido direction. 
So an asexual person with a high libido may prefer solo sex. They may prefer Mm -hmm. to engage with sexual activity themselves, or they may choose an interpersonal sexual engagement, but it may not be motivated by sexual attraction. It may be motivated by intimacy or love or Mm -hmm. consent. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So Mm -hmm. A lot of the things people will ask are are often just inappropriate questions that mm-hmm. are none of their business or trying to reassure the person that they just haven't found the right person yet yeah. or um, they just haven't tried the right technique yet, which is part of the reason that I situate myself within working with therapists because people who are sex therapists, relationship therapists and, you know, dating therapists, counselors, coaches, all of this, sexuality educators, there is a lot of beautiful knowledge around all of the ways people can access sexual pleasure, can build desire in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And this shame that so many people are forced under that prevents them from exploring their sexual desire and needs. So there is this assumption Mm -hmm. that there is, yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot of repression out there, a lot of lack of knowledge of what can be pleasurable or how to access your pleasure that may be different from how other people expect you to access it. But there is still this overlying expectation that everyone wants sex. They just need to figure out what they need to do to get to that place of wanting. Mm -hmm. And I think what you just said is maybe how I, as an educator, maybe made a person not feel great. And Mm -hmm. I think it was mostly when I was speaking, I had just like seven minutes in five different times. But I talked about it in such a way that I thought I made it probably sound like the way I spoke. I, I look, I thought about it afterwards and I'm like, I see, I see what I think made someone not feel seen, you know, Mm -hmm. where, where I might've spoken in the way where it was like, we experience, where (laughs) we experience, like, just like everyone has these like sense of not, I didn't say everyone, but we experience these sensual thoughts sometimes or something like this, you know, Um, but relating it to this element of never being able to maybe not always being allowed to express some of those things, even within these church spaces. Right. And like, or being vilified. So, Mm -hmm. but I recognized, I'm like, okay, even within that language of the way I spoke, I was like, okay, I can tell, I can see where then I was not representing the fullness of human sexuality mm-hmm. in the statement. You know, we need to start making space for the possibility that somebody is not going to want interpersonal sex. Right. We mm-hmm. need to make space for the possibility that someone is not going to want a romantic relationship. Right. And that some people don't experience the feelings that lead to those sorts of encounters and relationships and make space for the beauty of platonic connections Mm -hmm. and being single in solitude. Yeah, 100%. And I think there's so many, I have talked to a number of people who are, who live their lives as a single person and they talk about just the way, the shame that they experience Mm -hmm. and uh, the way people 
I think, look at them sometimes as a way of like, oh, you just haven't found someone yet who, who you love or, or what's happening to you. Or there's always that underlying thing of, oh, well, why can't you be with someone or Mm -hmm. why aren't you with someone? And it's just so crappy, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. You know, romantic love can give us a very euphoric high. Yeah. And that gets elevated to this level of godliness and magic Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of our pop culture idealizes this idea of romantic love. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody doesn't connect to that as their ideal, Mm -hmm. they are othered and Mm -hmm they question themselves. What's wrong with me? Why don't I want this? Why can't I feel that feeling towards other people? Mm -hmm. And then we go on this quest to figure out how do I access that? I spent most of my career as an adult product seller, teaching people how to access sexual pleasure. Mm. And I learned so much about arousal, about anatomy, about all of the accessories out there that can help to access these physical sensations. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work out there that focuses on the mechanics of arousal. And there's a lot of people that are starting to say, we can't just focus on the mechanics. We have to talk about the interpersonal elements. But Mm -hmm. then there's also the assumption that there is an interpersonal element. Mm. This is so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I, I feel, I'm just really glad that I got, that you came to speak with me today because I just, there's just so much and I appreciate it. And I know that as an educator, I have to learn and grow every day and I don't know everything. And I, to the best of my intentions have probably caused harm without realizing. And so I I have too. I spent so many years selling adult products with the assumption that this was kind of a a solution for a lot of people Mm -hmm. without understanding that interpersonal element and orientation and even whether or not this is what they actually want for their relationship. Right. Right. And I do a lot to account for. We do. But I'm just appreciate I just am appreciative of the way too that you're able to bring to bring in this knowledge and how you speak of it. And I think too that there's just so much I think as humans that we just kind of have to stay out of each other's business sometimes too. (laughs) You know, it's like yeah. And just and I want us to stop highlighting one narrative and I mean, I am a sucker for the trash television shows, <laughs> dating <laughs> and that, but I watch it still and I'm like, oh man, we are just still feeding into this. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. constantly feeding the dragon <laughs> of what people have to then deconstruct later, just endlessly yeah. deconstruction, you know, all of those assumptions. Yeah. And, and I think that speaks very well to what um, a lot of us within the sexual community and activism spaces try to point out, which is the value of intrinsic language mm-hmm. and allowing people to identify and define their own experiences without defining it for them. Mm. So we have all of these labels that are coming out of these communities. Labels are expansive. You could literally have an infinite number of labels, which can get very overwhelming when you're looking at this going, how am I supposed to memorize all this stuff? Right. 
Right. And you don't. You don't have to memorize it. As with any language, you're going to pick it up as you go along. If you feel it's really relevant to your work, then yeah, memorize it. Mm -hmm. But in day-to-day -day lives, it's okay to ask the question, what does that mean for you? Yeah. I mean, come on, right? What if we all <laughs> learned that phrase? What does that right? mean for you? <laughs> yeah. And you know, and then don't challenge what they say. Just take it in and, mm -hmm. you know, embrace their understanding of themselves, lean in with curiosity yeah, and respect their bodily autonomy and yes. don't ask intrusive questions, but you can still ask the question and you can even preface it if you, if you want to be clear, you know, I, I, I am familiar with asexuality, but I also know it's a spectrum. Can you tell me what it means for you? Yeah. Right. Because as, as many things, right. It looks different for each person mm -hmm. and to not just generalize completely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that works for all of these labels. You know, right. I, I understand non-binary as a concept, but how do you experience that? What does that mean for you? Mm -hmm. And do you think, I'm wondering too, if people are afraid to answer, to even ask that question, because A, it's also saying, maybe I don't know, mm -hmm. which, how are you supposed to know? It's mm -hmm. that person's lived experience. And B, I'm wondering if some people are like, well, is that offensive? You know, I, I, I think that every conversation has to be taken individually. This is not a magic question for everybody. Yeah. This is a concept we need to start working with and listening to how people define themselves. Mm -hmm. And yeah, some people don't want to put in the emotional labor. Yeah. You know, they may just want to say, you know what, there's a website for that. Go to asexuality.org. Look it up. Go to aromanticism.org. Look it up. Go to mm -hmm. tap, T-A-A-A-P.org. Look it up. Go to acesandarrows.org. Look it up. Mm -hmm. You know, go to demisexual.org. Look it up. All of these websites exist. There's communities that exist. There's content creators that exist on every single platform. Right. So whatever platform you're on, you can find, you can find amazing it. people to learn from including yourself. <laughs> including I try to make Aubrey. some space there too. Yeah, including Aubrey. So Aubrey, what story are you reframing in your life today? Mm. Well, you know, um, I, I've been doing a lot of work recently to reframe my own understanding of single life and you know, I, I am in a companionate married relationship and I have a child with my spouse and we have a, a lot of different identities kind of in the mix. And I, I'm not here to center my voice, but I can say that I am constantly trying to look into those margins to understand what is not being brought into the center of these conversations mm -hmm. and see what does it mean to center those elements? What does it mean to center single life and the beauty of people who are, as Bella DiPaolo calls it, single at heart? Mm -hmm. Chris Marsh is bringing in work on uh, single uh, Black middle-class women and femmes. Mm. Uh, Sharonda J. Brown wrote an incredible book called Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, a Black Asexual Lens on Our Sex-Obsessed Culture. Yes, I started, okay, I had the um, audiobook and it takes me, 
forever to get through things. And I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. So I go back and forth all the time. Just the, just the introduction alone. I was like, stop it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It blew my mind, blew my mind. And they really center their conversation in that book around the concept of compulsory sexuality. Yeah. And how asexuality and the black experience can highlight the issues of compulsory sexuality. So their book is not so much about asexuality as it is about compulsory sexuality and the conversations we need to be having around that. Right. And this is the lens that helps highlight what those issues really are. And and it's so expansive. It's an, an incredible book. I absolutely recommend it for anyone who is looking for a real deep dive into these conversations and who's ready to look at the oppressive frameworks that we're dealing with, especially in America. Oh gosh. So many, there's so many oppressive mm-hmm. frameworks. Mm-hmm. So how can people get a hold of you? And my website? You? Yeah. My website is acesexeducation.com. I'm also on Instagram and TikTok as acesexeducation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on Facebook, I think, as Aubrey Lancaster, uh, sexuality educator, something like that. I'll find you and put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll include all of these into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on to reframing our stories and spending time with me and helping and being as kind as you were <laughs> with some of my questions. So I just really appreciate you. Thank and you for making the work this that space. you're doing. Yeah, the work that you're doing, I think it's wonderful. So thank you so much.